Welcome to Starboard Vineyard Tours. I am Mark. And I'm Ben. And we are your tour guides to the world of science fiction studies. And this time it's a big one? Yes. I mean, okay, I don't think we've actually covered anything that wasn't of big. great significance. No, that, that's, tr- that's true, but like... This is, you're right, this book is very well known. Uh, today we're doing... Metamorphoses of Science Fiction by Darko Suvin, uh, specifically just the first, like, section. section. There's two major sections. Today we are doing poetics. Next yeah. time we'll do history. Yeah, the full the full title being Metamorphoses of Science Fiction on the Poetics and History of a Literary Genre. So this section is effectively the theory that he proposes, the way of understanding the sort of structure of science fiction. And we've actually referenced Suvin before on this podcast. Yes, because we've talked about, like, the Suvinian novum. Yes, and the concept of cognitive estrangement, which is proposed, technically speaking, in the paper that became the first chapter of this book, but in a meaningful way, this book is, I mean... There's a term that is used in one of the introductions to my edition, of which there's like four, one of which is the author's introduction, three of which are different, you know, editions and so on, which is the Suvin event. Mm-hmm. And this is very much a thing, which is that when this gets published, it's right when Science Fiction Studies, the journal, is beginning to be published as well, with Darko Suvin as editor very early on in its run. Um, it's the late 70s, it's 1979, I believe is when the book was actually published, yep. and this is literally, in a lot of ways, the point at which science fiction studies as sort of a field becomes an autonomous critique, becomes a sort of self-aware body of critique within academic discourse, within literary uh, criticism. And that's a big deal. Yeah, no, I, that that is true. And, like, this this book is not the beginning of science fiction studies, right? Like, it responds to other science fiction studies. Um, but it absolutely is also responding to lots of things outside of science fiction studies in order to, like, constitute uh, something important. Yeah, it's it's also in the weird situation where a lot of what it's, recor- it's re- responding to wouldn't necessarily have called itself science fiction studies. Again, the journal named Science Fiction Studies comes out like 1978 or something, or maybe 1973, but the original paper comes out in 1972. I should know this timeline, but it gets a little convoluted as some academic publication timelines do. Yeah, yeah, Science Fiction Studies starts in 73. Thank you for pulling that up. But the original paper for this was 72. Yes, um... At this point, it might behoove us to mention, Ben and I did go to, like, a bit of a housewarming party earlier tonight. Um, (laughs) We're a little loosened up. Yes, that's maybe the best way of putting it. Yes. Um, But I'm so excited to be doing this episode because, uh, I mean, I think I've called myself a Suvinian in the past on the podcast. Yeah, no, you have. You've 100% used that term. You might have even said that we, as the both of us, are Suvinians, which I'm willing to sign on to. I, I... I don't think I spoke for you, but um, I do think we are kind of civilians. <laughs> like, this is one of the major entryways I think both of us had towards science fiction studies. It's still really influential. When I say the Suvin event, there's still things like, I think it was only in 2016, 2018, that there was a conference called Getting Beyond the Suvin Event in Science Fiction Studies and the Discussion Thereof. 
And in a lot of ways, if you have to have a conference about getting beyond something within a field, that's a really sure sign that you're not beyond something in this field. <laughs> you know, if you're asking, can't we just get beyond Darko Suvin? You're not beyond Darko Suvin. Uh, listeners, <laughs> I need you to understand. <laughs> I'm the devil. He is tormenting me by not saying the word Thunderdome right now. <laughs> Sorry, the what? <sighs> Thunderdome? I-, I don't think I know it. Can we just get beyond this topic and move on? <laughs> and if you don't know what we're talking about, you should watch Mystery Science Theater 3000. And specifically the episode Warrior of the Lost World. Yes. It's, it's a good episode. It is a good episode. It is science fiction, technically. I would say most of what... M- I mean, MST3K is science yes, fiction. No, you're right, you're right, yes. Oh, man, that's a fascinating paper to write. But, um... <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Suvin. <laughs> yes, Suvin. Let's, okay, look, I think we often get bogged down in being like, oh, this theorist is so important, blah, blah, blah. We're not really, we don't have a ton of background information most of the time. I don't think we need to waste time on that. Let's start talking about the book. Yes. No, you're, you're totally right. I'm just excited to be here. Yes. Okay, so um, I did not read any of the introductory material from editions later than the original edition because i could only get material Mm. from the original edition but i did read the original preface yeah i did not actually read it this time around because if i remember correctly a lot of it is about like the justification for treating science fiction as a serious literature yeah it's basically just him saying what he's gonna do with the book yeah um i do think that he uh he defines science fiction in a much more definitional way than he does in a lot of other places in the preface, which is interesting to me. But um, that makes sense. But in a certain sense, I would say the book is a long form description of a definition. Yes. So it makes sense that the preface does like the capsule version of that, whereas the book as a whole is like, OK, if you're reading this, it is all about what you're what we are engaged in is defining science fiction and The thing that I think is really, and this is true from this preface and now that I'm looking at it and from uh, the book as a whole, it's defining science fiction as a literature worthy of study. Yes, that's very important to him. And it's not just because, like, of some sort of anxiety about people outside of, you know, the field being like, you're studying science fiction? That seems pointless. Although, frankly, it would... That was a really reasonable fear in 1979. Absolutely. And and frankly continues to be relevant. Yeah. Like the idea that it's not worth worthwhile. It's a to literature this. and therefore yeah. But I also think Suvin is really interested in justifying science fiction to himself in the sense mm-hmm. that like he looks at the the body of work of science fiction writing and he's like, damn, 90% of this is total bullshit. Ah, yes, the Sturgeon position. Right, and, like, I, you know, I I don't fundamentally think he's wrong about that. But he does really want to say what is aesthetically valuable about the 5%. And he believes in the concept of aesthetic value. Yes, Suvin is a Marxist critic in, like, kind of the old school. Um, he's, uh, you know, got that philologist element to him. Uh, and he is specifically interested in the idea of science fiction as having some part in the liberation of man, as he would put it. Like, yeah, it is... Yeah, sorry? 
Oh, I, I'm agreeing. I just <laughs> to say that, yeah, he sees science fiction as, as in at its best liberatory. Yes. And he's very concerned with this, not in the sense of being concerned with pointing to specific science fictional works and saying, this is liberatory, though he does that a little, and more with the idea of, I am going to show how the true essence of the genre, the thing that makes it a genre, is not uh, pulp replications of the Western, or is not just, uh, you know, imperialism expanded into space, but is instead something else, something inherently critical and creative and productive. In a lot of ways, I think Suvin believes in science fiction with a kind of fervor and intensity that is hard to match. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, should we start, like, summarizing his argument? Yeah, I think so. So, I'm gonna just go through chronologically, and Mm -hmm. by the way, one thing about how this book is structured that made me, as the person who writes the rough (laughs) summary, very happy, um, each chapter is subdivided into numbered sections, and in most cases, each each numbered section is itself subdivided into further numbered sections. So you have like 1.1, 1.2, etc. It's very rigorously structured. Yes, and like, this is something I would aspire to if I were to write an academic book. Now, would I achieve it? Hard to say, <laughs> but... Um, no, it's it's good. So I'm not going to, as I go along, be like, this is 1.1, this is 1.2. But, like, I have in my summary arranged them according to that, because it's basically one sentence of summary per point one section. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the first chapter, Estrangement and Cognition, uh, the first big section, Science Fiction as Fiction, Estrangement. That's parentheses, Estrangement. Yes, Um, so this is where he just first sort of presents and lays out this, uh, sort of phrase that he'll continue to use, the idea that science fiction is the literature of cognitive estrangement. Yes. Um, and, uh, basically the rest of this chapter? Yeah, yeah, chapter one, yeah. Yeah, the rest of this chapter is about... What is cognitive estrangement? What is cognition? What is estrangement? Yes. And he's very consciously building his concept of estrangement, which goes on to be massively important in science fiction studies, on previous literary critics. In particular, uh, I believe it's, um, shoot, it's it's Brecht? Yes, Brecht yes. and uh, Shklovsky. Yes, uh, and he's taking their concepts of estrangement or ostronenie or uh, defamiliarization and uh, reapplying them and redeveloping them into a specific kind of estrangement that he thinks is uh, a quality of certain literatures, which is to say certain genres, certain bodies of literature. Yeah, and so he talks about the idea of a spectrum that goes between realism and estrangement. So in that sense... Uh, we're talking about estrangement as, like, talking about something that is not in what he calls, and he'll use this phrase throughout the book, the author's empirical environment, or, like, empirically validated world. The idea being, you know, empiricism. That's what you can perceive with your senses. So this is his way of saying 
the real world or the mundane world or the the given world. Well, he's he's also the one who pioneers the use of the phrase given or zero world, which yes. I love that phrase so much because it's uh, it does two things. One, given world as in this is the world that we have received. He's very clear that realism is not necessarily directly representing objective reality. He is a, you know, he is a Marxist. He believes in an objective reality. But he also believes that the way it is perceived and represented by a realist author is not necessarily a universally true statement, but rather it could just be how that person perceives it. But that's still the basis he uses for what is the given world in science fiction. And then Zero World I like just because it sounds super cool. <laughs> I mean, also it it's useful for saying we're going to talk about degrees of difference from that zero, that estrangement is a spectrum that leads out to the realm of science fiction and some other estranged literatures, because he's very clear that there are multiple kinds of literature of estrangement. Yes, so, like, estrangement is not the only thing that makes science fiction, um, but uh, it is very important, and it produces, or it can produce, this sort of experience in the reader where, okay, something... Something has been represented, but in an estranging fashion. And so this uh, allows us to recognize what is being talked about, uh, but at the same time, it seems deeply unfamiliar. Um, that is me basically quoting him, as, yeah. he, as he puts it. And that's specifically him building on Shklovsky, uh, and to a lesser extent, Brecht. Uh, Brecht's estrangement is much more about forcing the viewer... Brecht was a, a drama, was interested in drama, was interested in theater, forcing people to recognize that what they're looking at is fiction, that it is constructed, and thus confronting them with that. And that was a large part of his estrangement. Whereas uh, Shklovsky, who was really interested in poetry and prose and sort of uh, the formal level of language as a, as a member of the, the Russian formalists, is that the right name for that school? I think it is. Yes. Um, uh, Shklovsky's Ostronenie, or estrangement, or defamiliarization, it's also translated, it's a, it's a neologism of, of his own, um, was interested in the idea that if you describe a thing that people are familiar with in a new way, it causes them to see it again as if for the first time. This allows them to think about it rather than simply replace it with thinking about it with habit. If you describe a pencil in a way that estranges someone, they can actually see it, whereas normally your preconceptions of a pencil, your understanding of it that you use in day-to-day -day life mean that you don't really have to see it. You don't have to do the cognitive work, and I'm bringing in cognitive advisedly, uh, to make sense of that pencil. So estrangement is defamiliarizing. It makes you no longer familiar with the thing you are familiar with. And that is a crucial element of estrangement to Suvin, but he's defining it slightly differently. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think... Um... There's an example that he uses mm -hmm. uh, that I think is really like fun, I suppose. Yeah. Um, where he talks about uh, uh, he talks about Galileo and the idea yes. of estrangement and the way he puts it. You know, this is a bit of a this itself is a bit of a fiction, right? Yeah. But he was amazed by that pendulum motion as if he had not expected it and could not understand its occurring, and this enabled him to come at the rules by which it was governed. So this is a an example of the idea that. Um, acting as though you don't know what something is might allow you to actually know what it is.
Yes. Allows you to think it anew and thus perhaps break through preconceived notions. Um, and then he actually, I, if I can quote something I, which I love, is that he then applies this to estrangement in the sense of not realism, in the sense of the inventions or novelties of science fiction, or, to be clear, fantasy, myth. There are many estranging genres, um, and all of them estrange our experience in a certain fundamentally similar way, and he'll go on to explain why he thinks they're very different in fundamental aesthetic import later. But at least for the starting point, he's just explaining what he considers estrangement to be. He also goes on to say that he does ultimately consider estrangement not purely for its own sake, but to re-represent the world in a defamiliarized form to us. Or as he says, The aliens, utopians, monsters, or simply differing strangers, are a mirror to man, just as the differing country is a mirror for his world. But the mirror is not only a reflecting one, it is also a transforming one, virgin womb and alchemical dynamo. The mirror is a crucible. And this also gets at something that I think is wonderful, which is that Suvin loves playing with language. Not to the degree that, like, a Derrida does, where it's practically unreadable, but, like, Suvin invents multiple words in this book. That is true. And it, it also, in general, um, this is just, like, a sort of reading note. If you're going to go read this book, it is denser than, I think, anything we've talked about so far. And it's yeah. also littered with little um, phrases in languages other than English. And... Virtually all of them are conventional phrases. So if he says something like avant la lettre, which is like French, you can type that into Google and find out that it means, you know, before the word or literally or rather literally before the word figuratively before there existed a name a for this for concept. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I just want to mention that because I think it might be intimidating for people to see him suddenly drop French and Latin and German, by and large, Google will help you with these because he's not actually saying new ideas in these languages. He's just using conventional phrases. But that does tell you something about his imagination of the reader. Um, yeah, no, he's he's extremely literary and literate. He's extremely uh, referential to a body of uh, uh, continental European criticism. Uh, you know, as I've mentioned, Shklovsky and uh, Brecht are two of his major uh, points for estrangement. He also really likes Ernst Bloch. Yeah. So he's very much positioning science fiction studies within, I mean, effectively critical theory, leftist literary criticism as a body of work uh, is clearly being sort of evoked as these are the ancestors of my method. Yes, yes. So then, um, having kind of discussed estrangement, uh, we can move on to cognition, uh, the next numbered section being science fiction as cognition, critique, and science. Um, so this is where he's going to lay out how science fiction differs from these various other literary genres or even just sort of like um, cultural formations, mm -hmm. um, such as myth, realism, folktale, fantasy, pastoral, uh, science popularization. Yeah. Um, He's very concerned with defining what science fiction is not, and this actually sort of prefigures a major thing, which was you mentioned the idea that he looks at science fiction, he says 90% of it is crap in the style of Theodore Sturgeon. 
his response is kind of to go, 90% of it is not doing the crucial thing that is science fiction. In a certain sense, uh, I don't think Suvin exactly believes in bad science fiction. He believes bad science fiction isn't really science fiction. Yes, he believes that there are things masquerading as the true science fiction. Yes, but which are actually rehashing of myth or of or our um, fantasy, but with a technological gloss and all sorts of things like that. Yeah, so we might want to try to define a little bit what he means by cognition. Um, he certainly puts in effort to do so. Yeah, yeah, just the idea that, um, you know, uh, a... A work that is cognitive, that affords cognition, is something that, like, this okay, is... Okay, how, how would you put it, actually? Because he does talk okay. about it, but also at length and in detail. At length and in detail in ways that are not just giving a straightforward description. And I have to admit, I have a bit of difficulty here disentangling my own thoughts from his, because this is... Talking about this has a major place in my dissertation, which is in progress. So, the way I would put... My gloss of Suvin, specifically, is that he thinks of cognition as a specific kind of materialist, empiricist, thinking things through in a rational manner that leads to greater human freedom, if used properly. Which is to say, cognition is at least a little bit Marxist, or rather that Marxism is one of the great successes of cognition. That it is a particular framework, which being materialist, being analytical and critical, and being determined to figure out the world for greater human flourishing leads to certain conclusions or at least to certain uh, lines of assault. Yeah, and and I think, by the way, one way that this is really evident is in his um, clear definition of myth as like, almost like the ultimate anti-cognitive form, right? And... Hmm. I, I, I don't disagree, but... Well, and I think a huge part of that is that he views it as, like, anti-historical. Yes. Sci his cognition is necessarily historical. It takes place in historical time. It looks at causes and uh, results in a continuity of, histor uh, of historicity. And, you know, again, Marxism is historical materialism. It's, it's a sort of one of its watchwords. And again, he is being a Marxist about this in a very 70s way. Yes, yes, that's correct. Yeah. Um, but I will say, I think there are genres he considers worse than myth in a certain sense. He does go on to say he thinks myth's cyclicality, its eternality, its essentializing is fundamentally opposed to human freedom in the present day. But he recognizes it as this, like, long tradition that encodes people trying to understand the world in important ways. Yeah, he, he doesn't detest myth the way he detests space opera. Oh yeah, space opera has uh, has failed the job of science fiction perspective, but I was actually thinking of fantasy, which yes. he has a very particular view of fantasy, which comes up in the discussion of what cognition isn't. He sees fantasy as non-cognitive estrangement or anti-cognitive estrangement, this leads to some very odd things where I think, like, Tolkien would be folktale for him, whereas fantasy is specifically, like, Lovecraft and horror. It's a very idiosyncratic definition of fantasy, which, again, not uncommon for the 70s. But it's very not like the way we would use fantasy to encapsulate primarily Tolkien, post-Tolkien, also post-Dunsany, and, you know, the various genres of popular fantasy fiction that developed from there. Yeah, yeah. His his fantasy... I mean, I think this also has a lot to do with the fact that, like, 
the fantasy publishing wave mm, is yeah. just, I mean, it, it, it has crested, right? And, like, there is almost, like, a moment for fantasy that I think he's, like, struggling with here. Yeah, this is, like, the Ballantine Books paperback wave, right? Like, yeah, and also, like, the the... You know, you're talking about post-Tolkien. Yeah, yeah. This is when that's yeah, yeah. Beginning. That that's the ba- the Ballantine like wave. And one of the things about that that I think is actually a fun little historical note is one of the major authors published by fantasy little publishing houses like Gnome and the Ballantine uh, Fantasy Classics is Lovecraft because he's basically in the public domain by default because his because uh, um what was it Arkham House is doing all this stuff with August Erlich, a Wisconsin original, unfortunately. Um. So there's a bunch of uh, Lovecraft uh, availability right around now. There's a bunch of, like, the weird tales, sword and sorcery and horror stuff that was Lovecraft adjacent. I can see how his perspective on fantasy in that context would really want to divide it sharply between folktale and this other thing that he's calling fantasy. I just think it's really useful for a modern reader to look at that and know that when he talks about fantasy in this book, in his later writings, he's includes Tolkien and fantasy, he's really thinking of a specific flavor of non-science fiction or, like, science fiction-adjacent weirdness that is really more like horror than it is like Tolkien. Yes. Um, so, so yeah, I think that is cognition, pretty much. Yeah, there's a couple of other elements in cognition that he talks about. He does give one of his classic uh, definitions. It's 2.2 in here. Do you mind if I read it? Yeah, go for it. Which is, SF is, then, a literary genre whose necessary and sufficient conditions are the presence and interaction of estrangement and cognition, and whose main formal device is an imaginative framework alternative to the author's empirical environment. And that is, like, the money quote. Like, at a certain level, if you just want to cite here is Suvin's definition of science fiction, you only have to get 20 pages into the book and it's there. And everything after that is justifying, defending, and expanding it. But that sentence I've seen quoted more often than anything else Suvin has ever written. Yeah, I agree. Can we maybe walk through that sentence a little Mm -hmm. bit? Because it's important. We should, we should. So, like, let's start. SF is then a literary genre. Um, That on its own is important. That, like, SF is about literature and it is a genre. And those are both, like, they maybe seem kind of obvious, but um, not everything that he's going to talk about is strictly speaking a genre. Um, He's going to also talk about the idea of, like, a a mode, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. Whose necessary and sufficient conditions. So, like, all right. This is enough. And you must have this. Yeah, and so this is actually a very, like, tight definition. Yes. You know? This is not, like, a sort of cluster definition. No, no, no. He's, in a lot of ways, there's the sort of idea of the megatext. The idea that science fiction is all the stuff we call science fiction, and that's how we can, you know, sort of cluster a genre. And often cluster definitions, bundle definitions of genres are very popular, frankly, in part because it's very hard to argue against them. It's very stable to say... This is my definition of science fiction. It's these things together. They don't need to share an essential quality. They're these things that were published as science fiction or whatever else. Whereas Suvin detests that. Or at the very least, Suvin thinks that's fuzzy-headed and not going to get us anywhere in the grand project of creating good science fiction and criticizing it properly. He thinks we need a definition of science fiction that is so uh, screwed in, so tightly bound, that it 
define it describes every work of science fiction and if it doesn't describe something that work isn't science fiction yes so all right necessary and sufficient those conditions being the presence and interaction of estrangement and cognition so it has to be an estranged world that is to say the world it describes is not our own is not the given world but also it must be cognizable it must be available to cognition and cognition must be involved in it it must use a certain kind of valid reasoning which he sees as the basis of critical analysis and human thought this is very definitely materialist and he does definitely think that science is a cognitive effort and is maybe one of the core elements of cognition in modern society yes and whose main formal device, so that means literally, like, a device used in fiction to accomplish some effect. Yeah, in, in the sense of, like, formal device here being a very broad thing, because it's, it's talking about, like, a framework di uh, distinct, uh, distinct from the etc. So formal device here literally means, like, an opera's formal device is that people sing. A, you know, play, a theater's formal device includes things like people being on stage and acting out lines. This is a very baseline thing. Exactly. So that main formal device of science fiction is an imaginative framework alternative to the author's empirical environment. Yes. So, so that's, that's defining the kind of estrangement, and it's defining the way it's presented. And uh, something that's interesting about this is that... Uh, Imagine a framework alternative to the author's empirical environment is really flexible. Like, that is a very wide variety of things. This doesn't say anything about the structure of story, the plot, what he'll call a chronotope, uh, for various reasons, but I just think that's a wild word. Um, the organization of the story, the method of telling, the form doesn't have to be uh, a novel. When he talks about literature, he means a very broad sense of, like, fiction production. So it can include film, it can include poetry in theory, it can include drama, anything like that. Yeah. Um... The only thing that matters is what's in this definition. That's part of why I think this book is so influential, is that he gives this really interesting and in many ways incisive definition that can be summed up in this one sentence. So if you want to argue with him, you have to pick a fight with some part of that sentence. You can't gesture broadly. Now, there's one other thing people will go after him for that is often because they can't do shit about the sentence and they still want to go after Suvin, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> I'm not actually sure what you're talking about. Oh, it's... No, no, we'll get to it. Yeah, we'll get to it, we'll get to it. <laughs> um, but yeah, another thing, by the way, that I want to emphasize, even though it might not seem that, like, interesting, but it is about an alternative to the author's mm, empirical yes. environment. Yes, yes, yes. Which yes. is of relevance because this is, first of all, this is not how... Uh, Chichiri Ronai talked about it, actually. Mm, yeah. Um, but also just in general that this tells us that science fiction is of its historical moment. Yes. It has its place in the place and time when it is written. Yes. And the author's empirical environment also means, for example, that works of science fiction written prior to some discovery that contravene that discovery are still science fictional. Right. They're still attempting to engage in this dance of cognition and estrangement that he defines. They're still attempting to do the thing, and they're not any less doing the thing because what matters is your relationship to your empirical environment. And something he mentions later that I think is really interesting is the idea that, like, 
you could in theory have science fiction that estranges and cognizes on like axes that are completely unlike modern science, completely unknown to us, totally bizarre and no totally novel. As long as you're still using estrangement on cognition and cognition, it would still be science fiction. He then goes on to say he's not really sure that such a fiction could exist because how would someone imagine something that is a totally novel, totally untouched, cognizable space? But in theory, science as material cognition only matters to science fiction in that it is this sort of major representative of cognition in our era. The point of science fiction is not popularization of science or even correct science, it is cognition. Yes. Um, <laughs> sorry, I've noticed recently that I say yes or yeah after things that Ben says very often. Like, he does the same to me, obviously. People say that yeah. all the time, but I seem to do it very frequently. <laughs> well, so now I'm self-conscious about it. He he also, and thank you for this, edits the podcast, so he has to listen to the whole thing, so I imagine that also affects this. That is true. I do have to listen to myself and all my weird little tics. And my weird little tics, but he, he feels fine telling me about those. <laughs> just just empirically, you do. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> Part of my empirical environment is that I will tell you things about yourself, whether or not you want to hear them. I guess that's part of your empirical of our anyways. <laughs> we're 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 going in odd directions here. Uh but yes. Uh and then he goes on to specifically, you know, say a bunch of things that science fiction is not, some of them, you know, relatively positive, like it's similar to this, but not quite the same, and some of some of them he's very clearly like putting the boot into a genre. <laughs> yes. Um there's a really there's some really cool little charts uh in the next oh, chapter yeah, 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 yeah. that i like that help kind of structure this definition of science fiction in comparison to other genres um so i'd love to talk more about those relationships when we get to those charts and so on yep yep um <sighs> and so yeah i do want to mention here and this is actually the thing people like to get in a fight with him is like 2.5 here goes on to say that um this uh, tends towards a creative approach with a dynamic transformation rather than toward a static mirroring of the author's environment, which is to say most science fiction does really wild estrangement. It doesn't just stick to a very close analog to the author's empirical environment. You know, you might say that an alternate history novel of relatively limited scope might be in that space of science fiction, but the common ones really like their grotesqueries, their wild visions. And then he goes on to say something that I think is kind of another core of his ideas in a way that isn't directly re uh, reflected in his definition but falls out of it, which is... Such typical SF methodology, from Lucian, Moore, Rabelais, Cyrano, and Swift to Wells, London, Zamyasin and writers of the last decades. And I just want to point out that none of those are people that would be considered science fiction authors, typically, because all of them were writing, except maybe Zamyatin, before science fiction as a term was codified, and before they would have been able to self-identify as science fiction authors. His history of science fiction, having defined it, it's, it's necessary and sufficient conditions are the presence and interaction of cognition and estrangement, that means that when cognition and estrangement interact in literature from literally ancient Rome, 
that's still science fiction. Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, I... I have in the past been pretty unsympathetic to this type of view, and I... I think I would still say, even after really, like, reading and digging into this book, that if I were asked to define science fiction, I think it would still start with Frankenstein. However... Yep. It is really clear to me that if your definition of science fiction is going to be theoretical and airtight... Conceptual. Conceptual, the way his is, you've got to go backwards in time. If you don't, then you're being disingenuous about, like, what you know, people believed and wrote in the past. (laughs) Yeah, no, and I do think there's arguments against a number of figures in that list being precisely what he describes. I think there's also arguments for maybe not quite going for necessary and sufficient, but just necessary, and allowing that there are other genres which have cognitive estrangement. There's, There's various ways you can deal with this, but the standard way that you pick a fight with Suvin If you are a science fiction studies author, Gary Westfall, um, who doesn't like his theoretical and conceptual approach and want to anchor it in the autonomous genre of, you know, Gernsback calls it science fiction, it's science fiction from that point on, anything before that is just proto-science fiction or not even science fiction at all. And also, if you're specifically mad at Suvin's ex- aggressively left criti- left critical version of science fiction, and you like the pulps, and you like Heinlein and all that, then you're going to go for him on this history. And that's probably the easiest place to get your, uh, get your angle to make Suvin look worse. Because it's hard to argue that some of these earlier ones, like uh, Moore's Utopia, um, are science fiction the way we mean it now. That's and again, interesting, because I actually think Utopia is a bit more of a slam dunk than some of these. Well, I mean, the reasoning, and part of this is, and Suvin will, is literally a, almost about, it's, it's in a bit, but is going to go on to defend that connection, but uh, Utopia being such the classic of the utopian genre... If you just argue that science fiction is not necessarily utopian, it can become more plausible to argue that utopia is not science fiction. You see what I mean? Yeah, no, I do see what you mean. I think that Swift is a way easier example Mm, of, like... No, that's... People who aren't Suvin do not normally call Gulliver's Travels science fiction. Mm, Cyrano? Yeah, uh, or, you know, or, and Lucian is writing a parody of a travel, uh, of a travelogue from the Roman era, and there's, I mean, frankly, there's very little evidence that Lucian thought anything of what he was describing was even a little bit plausible or cognitive. Lucian was almost certainly describing it in an intentionally non-cognitive way to make fun of the, uh, travelogues that were presented as realistic or true. I mean, I almost think, because, like, there are there are other places in this where Suvin will argue for certain types of nonfiction as potentially being science fictional. That's also true. So that almost makes me feel like the travelogues that Lucian is satirizing are more science fictional. Yes, but, but they're considered worse literature. Well, yes. And and that's part of the problem here as well. Not problem, that's unfair. Suvin would like to anchor science fiction in a history of great works and important satirists in order to anchor the idea that science fictionality as a way of thinking about the world has been present forever. In fact, he practically argues that there must have been Neolithic science fiction, at least in some vague form, because he argues that it's effectively a core element of human thought. 
Yeah, and there's also, I think, an interesting element here where, on the one hand, he is clearly aware that modern science is a historical construct, right? Yes. Um, he, he will explicitly acknowledge that often. Um, but then at the same time, he wants to see cognition as essentially trans-historical. Yes. And he wants to see, I think, an analogy between those two things, but not an identity. Yeah, the line he uses, which I think is, it comes just after the SF methodology line, is the kinship of this cognitive critique with the philosophical fundaments of modern science is evident. So I think you do get a bit of a sense from him that science fiction and uh, cognitive estrangement we're waiting for thousands of years for science to get here. Yeah, science is just, oh, we've started using this in a certain way, but the tools were already there. Yes, and he does believe in modern science as, like, a better and more effective episteme than previous ones. Yes, uh... You know, he does have, he does definitely agree with a lot of left critiques of things like that. He often talks about the ways that, for example, uh, in this book, he talks about the ways that people want to move away from cognition, and he argues that the reason people take uh, comfort in non-cognitive uh, fantasy, non-cognitive fairy tales and folk tales, despite the fact that we live in the era of modern science, is that under capitalism, under empire, rationalization, cognition have been used to terrible ends, used and abused, in his opinion, and therefore people are reacting to this incredible tool being used to effectively oppress them, to do terrible things. You know, the era of the atom bomb, right? He he looks at that uh, rationality and the way people are sort of revulsed by it and says, this is terrible both because of the things it's doing, but also because it's making people not like science fiction. It's making people move away to these other estrangements that aren't healthy, that aren't doing the thing they need to do, that are maybe okay in small quantities, but uh, even then he's skeptical. Yeah. Um, okay, can we uh, move on a bit from the sort of uh, pure definition? Yep, yep. Um, so uh, the next sort of section is him basically, uh, like, developing out this definition, developing mm -hmm. out what does it mean, like, what are the um, further implications of this, right? Yes. Um, so he talks about, um, he does talk about, like, the history of science fiction, science fiction as a historical genre here. Mm -hmm. Um he also talks about, and something I wanted to point out, when he talks about uh, science, what science fiction is not, again, such as myth, one of the things he talks about that I think is core to his idea of cognition as well is the idea um, that he often glosses as man's destiny is man. He loves these big pronouncements, as if you can't tell already, um, where basically in the world of myth, or from his perspective, the world of fantasy or the world of these various other genres, the world has an ethic to it. The world encodes certain ethical positions, either recuperatively or like pro-human or anti-human, it doesn't matter. The world cares about things. That's what myth is about. And from his perspective, truly cognitive works, either naturalism and realism or uh, science fiction, the world is apathetic. It simply exists, and it is humans and human social uh, constructions that create destiny, that create the possibilities for human development within that world which is manipulated by humans. Um, 
And in a lot of ways, this is a very straightforward description of literary realism and literary naturalism. Uh, I think a great example of this is the idea of the pathetic fallacy, which is a criticism of the idea that when you, your characters feel emotions, the world around them should produce the correct scenery for those emotions. If there's a big confrontation, there should be a storm. If Dracula is, you know, menacing someone, thunder strikes, you know, what a big castle, giant thunder strike, kind of stuff. That's the pathetic fallacy. Pathetic in the sense of pathos, fallacy in the sense of it does not follow. So it's a pathetic fallacy in that the world fits the pathos despite the fact that there's no causal connection between what happens in the character's mind and what happens in the world around them in normal life. Yeah, I should say, you describe this as like a criticism, um, but really like the phrase pathetic fallacy, it sounds really negative, but it's not. Yeah, no, It is fear... a totally neutral description of a, a, a technique people use in fiction. It's a neutral description, but the fact that it's phrased as a fallacy is because people, the, per, the, the, the coiners wanted to say, it's not realistic. It's yes. not like the world actually is. That's why it's a fallacy. Yes. Just, just that it's not like a Bad. lie. It's not a lie. Yes, yeah. The pathetic fallacy is not, if you say that something is pathetic, the pathetic fallacy is not meant to be saying, therefore this book is bad, but often that implication arrives in the terms of like, well, this is kind of melodramatic, it's overwrought, it's exaggerated, it's unrealistic. Yes. And so science fiction is not supposed to have the uh, the pathetic fallacy. It's not supposed to have the world responding to the person without a clear material causation for that. If there's a big thunderstorm around a mad scientist castle in science fiction, it should be because they either sought out thunderstorms to power the lightning rod to make their creation, or they built a weather machine. Yes, that that is... That is... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this is... Um, we shouldn't talk about it because I've spent too much time on this already. I just think the pathetic fallacy is a really interesting idea. But he also describes his perspective of various different ethical orientations of the world and characters within different forms of estranging and non-estranging literature in order to contrast them with science fiction and the realist or naturalistic novel. Uh, which he also thinks is like a core element of modern literary criticism, the discussion of realism. In fact, I think part of the point of this section is basically to argue that science fiction is in a certain sense closer to being realism than it is to being fantasy. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I think that is his, like, perspective. Um, and then the the very end of this chapter is really just sort of him saying, like, and here's some things that other works could continue to do after me. Um, which, you know, I think generally speaking, they have done. Yeah, that's how you know that you basically helped found a field of uh, literary criticism, is when you have this bit that's like, I don't have time to go into it, but here's things you could write books about, people actually write those books? <laughs> like, do you know how many books I've read where someone's like, you could go on to do all this, and I'm like, cool, oh, nobody's ever done that, nobody's touched that. Yeah. So, yeah... I, I realize I keep mentioning this idea of, like, this is a very successful book, but it really is. I Like, you cannot overstate its influence in science fiction studies. At the very least, if you want to write something that, like, seriously disagrees with Suvin, you have to explicitly seriously disagree with Suvin. He's going to show up here in your introduction just for you to shoo him out. Oh, 
All right, can we move to the next chapter? Yes, please. Okay, so the next chapter is SF and the Genealogical Jungle. Um, So in this chapter, he is going to talk about basically uh, the genealogy of science fiction. So other genres, uh, ways to categorize them, ways that science fiction relates to them. Um, To some extent, uh, subdivisions within science fiction. Mm Mm-hmm. I, I do really like, but also find very amusing, the quotation from Northrop Fry, who's one of his major influences that he puts at the beginning of this chapter, mm-hmm. which is, thanks to the Greeks, we can distinguish tragedy from comedy and drama. When we come to deal with such forms as the mask, opera, movie, ballet, puppet play, mystery play, morality, corn media dell'arte, and Zauberspiel, we find ourselves in the positions of Renaissance doctors who refuse to treat syphilis because Galen said nothing about it. <laughs> and basically what this quotation is saying is because we insist on only looking at these genre uh, categorizations of like really classical sources, we can't really say a lot about things that don't fit neatly into those categories with a very strong implication, even though Fry does not reference science fiction at all, that science fiction is a meaningful landscape of criticism that standard criticism simply isn't prepared to talk about. And in this I think that implication is entirely correct. That's why we have a subfield of science fiction studies. Yes. Um, one, one thing I want to say about this chapter that I really appreciate is that he lays out at the beginning a number of assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, essentially, his perspective on this is that he's not going to back these up. He's just going to state these as things he's taking to be true. And ideally... The places he's able to get from those starting points are going to be worthwhile and interesting enough that you're like, all right, you know what? I sign on to your starting points, Mm -hmm. Um, which I appreciate because I think that essentially every argument ever made is has some sort of structure like this. I don't think anybody is able to make a point that doesn't start from somewhere. Yeah, Um, but not everyone puts those in the first paragraph of their chapter numbered. Yeah, he also, he says, I am assuming that these four axioms will be justified by their cognitive yield. He's saying, the results of this are going to be so good that you're just going to agree with me. And he's right. So those assumptions, just to go through them real quick. Um, So one, no field of studies and rational inquiry can be investigated unless and until it is at least roughly delimited. Fully agree. So that's him saying we need to define science fiction if we're going to talk about science fiction. Yes, at least roughly. That there exist literary genres as socio-aesthetic and not metaphysical entities. So, okay, genres exist and they're not like, they they are socio-aesthetic. So they're historical. Yes, they're historical. They are based on people and the things that people do. Yes. Um, That these entities have an inner life and logic of their own. Uh, And he goes on to say more about that. But essentially... And goes on to say, basically, they can also interact with and incorporate elements from other genres. Yes, but ultimately that that means that they do have their own sort of distinctive nature. Yes, that science fiction as a genre, as a tradition, as a way of doing things in literature is not just blending into other genres, but does have its own autonomous, like, reason to exist. And again, a lot of this stuff is stuff that you kind of take for granted if you work in a field called science fiction studies, which is to say, we study a specific genre. Yes. Um, And then the final uh, little axiom here is that the genres pertinent to this discussion are naturalistic fiction, fantasy, myth, 
folktale, pastoral, and science fiction. So those are going to be the things that he's going to talk about and compare to science fiction and look at as, you know, in some way part of a tradition with it. Yes. And also, uh, I'll note, he does not say that these genres are, um, you know, uh, music, dance, poetry. He's making it very clear that we're talking about genres of plot structure, narrative structure, and content, not the large formal genres, because, you know, that's where the term originally comes from, of, you know, uh, prose versus poetry and things like that. And I think that's an important thing to say if you're doing this, like, super foundational work, but also maybe not something that uh, his readers nowadays are particularly concerned about. Like, the, it, that line always gets sort of a, sure, man, for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, he goes on to sort of, uh, roughly define fiction. I, I don't know that we need to go into his definition I, of fiction, but I just want to quote a truly wonderful sentence, um, which is him basically saying, well, let me just quote it. Conscious of the monsters and incubi lurking just beyond my path, and averting piously my eyes from the bleached bones of the pioneers fallen by its side, I proceed to recall my starting point, the identifications which I worked out for the aforementioned genres in the preceding chapter. He's like, look, so many people have fucked up by trying to define a genre. So many have just been relegated to the ash heap of history because other people looked at their genre definition and went, I, I don't think so. I would just like to mention, Ben, that I highlighted that exact sentence with the comment, so cool. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. Like, I, I've said before that part of what makes his incredibly dense writing style enjoyable is that he does shit like this. He really has, I mean, what it is is that he has total confidence in his own writing. He has absolutely no sort of, like, self-consciousness of... Is it weird to talk about monsters and bleached bones and how I'm going to be the one that survives? No. I'm defining a field. And then he does it. You know, I love it. this has been a bit of a through line for the things that we've talked about. Because I'm now thinking about, like, Joanna Russ's titanic confidence. Yeah, no, look. Frankly, even if you're not going to define the field by your thing, believe in it. Act like you're going to. Take your moves. Don't constantly second guess or back off, because all that does is tells your reader they don't need to listen to you. Suvin knows that you need to listen to what he has to say. You might disagree, but he's not going to be the one to back off. That is that is true. <laughs> um, okay, can we talk about those charts that I like so yes, much? Yes, absolutely. I The charts are good. Yes. So this is him basically comparing science fiction to other genres. Specifically the ones he listed. Yes. By saying, okay, here are some qualities that science fiction has, um, you know, estrangement, cognition. Um, and we're going to make a little, like, uh, you know, a little two-by-two two box. It's a Punnett square. Yes. So we've got naturalistic fiction, which is to say that it, you know... It directly represents the author's empirical environment. Or attempts to. Attempts to. And estranged fiction, which, you know, does something other than that. <laughs> yep. And then you've got cognitive and non-cognitive fiction. Um, and so, uh, just let me look over yeah, your shoulder. Yeah, no, absolutely. Ben's got the paper book. <laughs> um, so, you know, obviously naturalistic and cognitive fiction, maybe not so obviously, but that is what he calls realistic literature. Yes, and 
the cognitive part is uh, interesting because realistic literature, you know, people can argue about how really representative of the world it is, but part of his argument here is that because it is materialistic, because it takes for granted certain, let's say, epistemological questions, naturalistic, realistic fiction is attempting to be cognitive and part of this is also that he is a literary critic who believes in this literary tradition, who believes in the psychological novel, in the novel's capacity for insight. Yeah, and then he also does believe, he also does describe non-cognitive naturalistic fiction. So this, I think, would be, I mean, he calls it sub-literature, right? Yes, sub-literature of realism, by which, I mean, an example of that might be, like, the detective novel or the romance. These are works that are theoretically claiming to represent our world, but are fundamentally just interested in... And I mean, the detective novel is a complicated case. He doesn't like them a lot, but he admits that they have a kind of cognition, but they're also very closed. They're just one little puzzle. They're not expanding your critique. They're not encouraging you to take a wider view of humanity. And that's kind of what he finds a little disappointing. Detective novels are probably in between these categories, frankly. I, yeah. I, I jumped to the wrong example. You but, know what I think he would say is, like, firmly in the category yeah. of non-cognitive naturalistic fiction? Yeah. Is anything that attempts to be timeless. Like, a TV show that just tries to be like, oh, well, this sitcom could happen in any decade, right? Well, like, that's, that's something plausible. that's non-historical. That's plausible. I think that... See, this gets into a weird thing where we're desperately trying to imagine what Suvin would say about genres he wasn't interested in writing about. Well, sure. So, so there's some difficulty here. I think that in a lot of ways what he means is just generally bad fiction also. Just That's like fair. Fiction that isn't very insightful, that isn't trying to be insightful, escapist realist fiction. I'll bet he hated James Bond. Oh, yeah. Or, no I mean, he's still alive, so I'll bet he hates James Bond. Well, yes. Uh, um... So then, you know, on the other column, right, we've got estranged fiction and then cognitive and non-cognitive estrangement. So we've basically already talked about this. We're comparing SF to, like, fantasy folktale. And myth, yes. Yes. And then also... metaphysical. Yes. And then also pastoral goes in the category of cognitive estranged fiction. I don't really understand... I don't know the pastoral well enough to talk to this, and it's always one of the weirder things in Suvin that I keep telling myself, I'm gonna go read up on the pastoral, and then I never do. I think the core element is the pastoral is kind of idyllic. It's concerned with philosophy, with lovemaking, with, uh, you know, like, shepherds as philosophers, lovers, and etc. It is concerned with human relations and human experiences. It is not metaphysical. It is materialist. It is, to a certain extent, hedonistic, but not in a sort of, in a way that he finds upsetting. So... The pastoral is estranged. It depicts a world that is too nice, too friendly, too well-arranged. Effectively, I think, Suvin's kind of imagining the pastoral as describing communism. I mean, I, I don't think that's actually how he'd put it. That's me being going a little bit far. But it's describing a world of plenty and human experiences and human relationships and human thought that is unbounded by current material uh, relationships, that is unbounded by... Uh, hierarchies or power structures, and in which we can just sort of imagine these, not precisely timeless, but to some extent idyllic scenarios. And so I think that the pastoral is in some ways the... Uh, I think it is connected to science fiction by the umbilical of utopia. All right, yeah. That makes Anyways, sense. That is me 
attempting to understand this thing which deals in a genre I don't know that well and which has a bunch written about it. So, listener, please take with a grain of salt. Also, okay, I, I, I have found where I got that idea that he, like, would find a sort of uh, timeless quote-unquote yes, narrative yeah, yeah. because he talks about uh, literally carelessness about precise time location is the mark of the subliterature of mainstream yes, realism. Yes, yes, Um, In which he includes contemporary kitsch. Yes, um, so a lot of contemporary novels that aren't particularly concerned with, like, history, the world around them, that are just concerned with individual experiences, a lot of what we call literary fiction almost certainly falls into subliterary for him. They're not concerned with historical sweeps and the influence of culture and society upon the individual. They're concerned with just relationship drama that is presented as timeless yeah whereas um whereas science fiction and uh realistic literature can cover any possible time right but their their historical sort of situatedness is is important yes Um, he, he says something here that I've actually found really generative and would love to write more about, which is, though concentrating on the present, it has, parallel with the rise of historical sciences and dialectical philosophy, evolved the historical novel and drama. And he's talking here about literature in general, that though it tends to focus on the present, we now have the ability, via the fact that we have archaeology, history, this developed, this greater sweep of time developed. And also, when he says the dialectical uh, philosophy, he means Marxism again, or to some extent Hegelianism. It allows us to imagine the world as having been different in the past and following some kind of orderly logic or laws which develop things according to material forces, and this allows us to situate our stories in the past without it being a total break with the reality of the present. And science fiction, in his opinion, takes what the historical novel, what the uh, realist novel can do, and goes even further. But... It's not just set in a vague other world, but a very specific time and place, even if that time and place is totally invented. Yeah, so this is the kind of, like, taxonomy, the sort of, like, um, you know, the theoretical above, uh, like, uh, bird's eye view. Um, And then, do you mind if I move on a little bit? Go ahead, go ahead. So he goes on to um, bring this down a little bit more into, like, historical specifics. Um, in his little uh, metaphor of jungle exploration. Um, yes, the SF and the genealogical jungle is the name of this chapter. Yeah, yeah. So said. the first section was a view from the mountain. This is now an ecological jungle trip. Um, I do want to mention, by the way, this whole idea of like uh, going into the like dense, dangerous jungle. Livingston, I presume. Yeah, we need to be like conscious of the weirdness, the imperialism of that metaphor. But I think he's also conscious of that and he's doing Just this. Just decided it was going to be what he did yeah well also i think because like because this is what so much sf is structured like you know Mm, i think it's because he wants to make his comparison in genealogy between superstition and darwinism and like Mm. specifically the idea that he is doing to science fiction what darwin or and people like him he's not just saying himself but the 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 cognitive critic does to science fiction and its origins and its structure and the way that it is branched out what Darwin did to categories of life by saying, here are principles by which it diverges and uh, evolves. Here are principles by which this whole uh, tree of life can be established. 
as opposed to just collecting examples and sort of putting them together and looking for sort of uh, vibes and energies and clues. Yes. Yeah. There is also another chart. Did you want to go through this one? Oh, I sort of thought that I had talked about that a bit. Oh, that's that's fair. I, this chart is also very similar to the previous one. It is. It's it's almost it's the same entries more or less. Uh, it's just that the elements of the chart are different. Effectively, it's making an analogy between um, historical and estranged on one axis and pluridimensional or one-dimensional on the other. Pluridimensional here meaning that you can move through time, whether a strange time or historical. You can hop around through history. You can look along it, whereas one-dimensional, there is no time. It's all just sort of there. And I do think this is one place where, like, he clearly was not interested in reading Tolkien, given how much Tolkien is like, I'm gonna write a whole history. Yes. No, his his idea that fantasy cannot be historical is clearly not what we think of as fantasy today. Yes. And to be fair, he does also have particular definitions and uses of historical, but I do think also that, like, a fantasy world that has a whole defined history in some ways does appeal to certain things that are also enjoyed in science fiction— but also, I don't think that would convince him that fantasy has become cognitive. Uh, there's some interesting things about his later writing about uh, science fiction and fantasy. I should mention that he has since written about how maybe he was too harsh on fantasy. Uh, but in this book, in 79, he is absolutely coming for its throat. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know how much detail we need to go into on this particular section because it mostly is the specifics of, like, comparing other genres to science fiction. And we have kind of... We've gone through some various elements of it, and I do think it's a very interesting section, but it is also... And it has some things that we've mentioned, such as his thing about, uh, you know, some science fiction is just uh, fantasy dressed up as it. Or people might be rejecting rationality because of the things it has done to them, but cognition is still this important force. I think the part that I find most interesting in this section is the stuff he has to say about myth. Mm. Um, because because on some level myth is the sort of the the estranged genre that he sees as most different from science fiction. Um this is also, by the way, this this section in general and, and many parts of this chapter, he, he says at one point early on, I think it's in the preface, um, that there is a kind of like spiral movement to this book where he comes back to ideas that he's already talked mm -hmm. about to elaborate on them. Um, and so there's a really good example of this right here where he says, as I mentioned in my first chapter... Myth absolutizes and even personifies apparently constant motifs. So, like, he's basically already said something about how myth takes, you know, these, like, story structures and absolutizes them, makes them absolute, makes them, like, eternal. Um, mm -hmm. He's already talked about that, but he's now revisiting it um, in this, like, detailed way of categorizing myth, categorizing science fiction. Yes. This does also have some of his polemics against science fantasy and other science fiction that, from his perspective, uh, coats fantasy with a thin veneer of cognition. And therefore, and here's again his love of fantastic metaphors, ironically, 
Fossilized fragments of reasoning are used to inculcate irrationality, and the social energy of readers is expended on witches' sabbaths instead of focusing it on the causes for our alienating, murderous, and stultifying existences. The power structures holding back the harmonization of the sapiens, the true demonology of war and market breeding pride and prejudice. And like, that's just virtuoso writing, but it's also pure polemic. Similarly, uh... In time, it, uh, when the black ectoplasms of fantasy stifle SF completely, its time shrinks to the point consciousness of horror, gloom, and doom. Its daydreams turn into an inchoate nightmare, and under the guise of cognition, the ancient obscurantist enemy infiltrates its citadel. Like, myth and uh, irrationality are trying to tear down fantasy from within. And now, I will say, if you are interested in specifically, like, you know, existential horror. Uh, th this thing he's saying about it, like, tearing down the edifice of rationality might sound, like, actually pretty appealing. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think this is most of fantasy, but if you're into, yeah, specific varieties of horror that are most aligned with, like, playing with science fiction, I think it's true that they have this relationship, but they know it and they're doing it on purpose for fun. Or, yes. you know, for effect. Uh, but... He does talk a little bit about how, um, uh, and this is actually something that prefigures stuff in the Utopia section, um, how myth is not fiction. He doesn't mean that myth is true. He doesn't mean that myth accurately represents physical reality, but rather that myth is a cultural form that develops out of certain cultural spaces. It's not a thing someone wrote down on purpose one time for a certain effect, or if it was written at some time, it has developed through and metamorphosed through social spaces. And the sort of corollary or the inverse of that, fiction cannot be myth. You can't write a myth. You can only write a fiction. Yeah, there's a... He, he says about this, What a writer like Faulkner or Kafka creates is not a myth, but a personal fictional statement formally analogous to myth in a radically different and indeed incompatible cosmological or ideological context. So, like, essentially... I mean... No one is in the position of Homer. He yes. would probably even argue that Homer is not in the oh, position yeah, not, of Homer, yes. as I put it. Yeah, yeah. Um, he would almost certainly argue that uh, Homer, if there was a single Homer, and he'd probably be very skeptical of that, because he's generally skeptical of the idea of sort of individual epical genius as opposed to a person arising out of a cultural milieu. Um, Homer was not writing myth. Homer may have been writing fiction or recording versions of myth and creating fiction based on them, which then becomes myth with time, canonization, and the way people relate to it. Yes. Uh, and then, you know, and he goes on to say, Kafka and Faulkner are, they cannot help but be historical writers. They are writing within history, and myth is the sort of, has escaped from history by its nature. Uh, so, you know, as he says, also, a lot of science fiction uses myth forms for its plots. That doesn't make it myth. It just means that people are compelled by myth and are replicating its basic sort of structures, and that you can use this well. He then goes on to name a few science fiction authors that just try to write myths and why they're bad. Well, 
Is that what he's saying, or is he saying, here are some science fiction authors? Which, which ones are you? All attempts to transplant the metaphysical orientation of mythology and religion into SF in a crudely overt way, as in C.S. Lewis, Van Voiders, Lasney, or in more covert ways in very many others, will result only in private pseudomyths, in fragmentary fantasies or fairy tales. Yes, okay, sorry. I was thinking about the later bit, where he he's like, here are some great authors whose works I love, but here's the specific moment where they fall into pseudo-myth. Yes. So, <laughs> and, like, I think it's great that, like, his highest praise has to include, like, oh, by the way, here's the one point where you fall down. Yeah, well, at least in this section, which is all about myth, he's talking about authors that used myth, and basically he's saying, and here's why I think that's, you're not going to succeed in just using this without myth using you. Yes. Yeah. No, like, a lot of Suvin is about inculcating and and developing a really, in many ways, harshly critical sense of science fiction in the hopes of, you know, the mirror is a crucible, so is this book, or at least it's intended to be. It's supposed to purify out the kind of science fiction that can really help liberate humanity in some way, can be part of our de-alienating uh, journey through estrangement. And for that to happen... Every flaw has to be brought forward and understood. Every point at which the genre stops being itself has to be recognized so that we can find that core way of thinking in some ways. Not like, you know, he's interested in literature. He loves the literature. He cares deeply about it. But what he's most loves in it is that it encodes this way of thinking about the entire world in it. Yes. All right, can we talk about extrapolative and analogical essays? Yes, please do. So this is the next numbered section um, where he basically, he is talking about um, two different relationships that science fiction can have to the given world. Um, one of which is extrapolation, um, which is basically like you, you start from some sort of hypothesis about how the world might be different, and then you reason out how that might happen. You extrapolate, um, you know, based on, like, uh, you know, rational, cognitive uh, frameworks. Um, so, so there's, so that is extrapolation. And, like, this is a quite common form of science fiction, but it's clearly not his favorite um <laughs> yeah i mean i think also he specifically thinks that it falls into a particular trap which is believing itself to be prophetic yes and like the you know it is important to him to kind of point out like this type of extrapolation it is a fictional device yes. science fiction is not a tool for predicting future science yeah um but what it is a tool for is a tool for like thinking about the future. Yes. Right? Um, and this is also one of the places where he makes the connection, which goes on to be a core part of his uh, general sense of science fiction's history, between science fiction and satire. Yes. That the idea that, uh, to some extent, uh, because science fiction social extrapolation is not just predicting the future, it is necessarily... Uh, exaggerating or developing on things in the present, and also, therefore, it can't... 
his line here is, uh, it cannot be uncritically committed to any momentary city, to any moment in time, to any place in time. It always has, extrapolation has to be critical. It can't just be, I mean, boosterism. It can't just be about how great or how great we are now or how great we'll be in the future. Instead, it has to be critical and analytical. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, he has this line, This fundamentally subversive genre languishes in straitjackets more quickly than most others, responding with atrophy, escapism, or both. Which is to say, when science fiction is limited to, in its extrapolations, to things that are uh, positive about society, positive about the powers that be, it very rapidly either collapses in on itself or uh, becomes escapism, just pure, uh, pure enjoyment with no purpose. God, he continues to do this thing where he loves, like, referencing uh, things rapidly, having a bunch of cool references. And again, it's very effective for making me want to read quotations from the book. Uh, may I? Go, go ahead. As Plato found out in the court of Dionysius and Hithlo Day at Cardinal Morden's, SF figures better devote themselves to their own literary republics, which, to be sure, lead back, but in their own way, to the Republic of Man. SF is finally concerned with the tensions between Civitas Dei and Civitas Terrena, and it cannot be uncritically committed to any momentary city. And this is a roundabout and, re and uh, elusive way to describe to the idea that, like, science fiction, when it extrapolates well, when it cares about the things it's doing in the way he thinks it should— is fundamentally engaged in the pursuit of the better city, the, you know, utopian version of the world, not in defending the current way of being, but in finding, you know, something else. Uh, it's just that he has to do it through, like, literally three different illusions and the Republic of Man. <laughs> you know, man's destiny is man. I don't know if you've heard. <laughs> So the other sort of orientation that science fiction can have uh, towards the given world, rather than extrapolation, it can be uh, analogy. Um, so in this case, uh, you know, he's not talking about straight one-to-one -one allegory, right? Where mm -hmm. it's like each element in this science fiction story represents some specific element in the world. Yeah. Um, although I think that would be included under this. Um, but, I mean, uh, essentially, um, the important thing here is that the, the narrative of analogical science fiction is in some way self-consistent in a way that somehow, like, is analogous to the real world and therefore in some way can comment on it. Yes. Um, can uh, make some kind of comparison to it. Yes, he, and you know, again, this is the thing that he sort of says, even extrapolation has to do a little, or it quickly becomes meaningless. Uh, and he does say, uh, situated between Borges and the upper reaches into which shade the best utopias, anti-utopias, and satires, this semantic field, the sort of an analogical model, is a modern variant of the Conte Philosophique of the 18th century. Similar to Swift, Voltaire, or Diderot, these modern parables fuse new visions of the world with an applicability, usually satirical and grotesque, to the shortcomings of our workaday world. And some of his examples of this are uh, Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness, Lem's Solaris, and Kafka's Metamorphosis, or In the Penal Colony. He certainly considers Kafka SF, by the way. Like, there's, there's no question there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, 
these are the sort of modes of uh, science fiction that he's most willing to say break free of the, uh, you know, the let's say, genre forms, myth tropes, and uh, and escapisms that he finds most stultifying and uh, problematic for SF as a genre and as a way of thinking critically. Yeah. And that's, actually, that's a pretty good intro into the final section of this chapter. Yep, yep. Um, which is, uh, terribly... Yeah, the title is bad. Poorly chosen title. The Jungle Explorer, Medicine Man, or Darwinist. Like, like I said, he wants to compare the superstition to the Darwinism, and his use for superstition is... It's just not a good phrase to use here, man. Yeah, no, bad choice. Especially with the whole jungle metaphor. Like, Yeah, I mean, you, that's why he did it. Yeah, no, I know. I'm just... <laughs> it sucks. Anyway, but uh, what he's trying to talk about here is uh, other SF criticism and what are the sort of... Um, like, existing strains of ways of talking about SF. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he talks about, like, basically analysis of science fiction as myth. Yes. Um, which, I mean, as we've talked about, he's very critical of. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, essentially... I'm not sure how much sense it makes to go into great detail no, here. No, because... this is kind of a dead uh, argument. Like, this is not, yeah. not his argument. Rather, the things he's fighting against, frankly, uh, he didn't need to bring this kind of firepower to deal with them. At least retrospectively, this was absolutely breaking a butterfly on a wheel. But on the other hand, maybe it was a lot more prominent at the time, and he just was part of absolutely dumpstering it. But there are... Uh, authors uh, who still, you know, think that these sort of myth symbols, psychological co uh, constants and things like that are important parts of the fantastic, whether fan fantasy or science fiction. These are arguments you still see made, but not in the kind of forms that he's responding to them, which are, as far as I can tell, quite outdated. Um, very few people who criticize science fiction, even those who are not Suvinian at all, use myth as their watchword for it. It's just not what's in fashion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so to some extent, sure, we're all Darwinists now, I guess. You win. <laughs> like, you, you got this, the thing this specific section is saying, you have succeeded at, this isn't the kind of criticism that's currently popular, um, this isn't how people talk about science fiction, and to some extent, if again, if you're going to disagree with Suvin, you still need to disagree with Suvin, and people aren't doing that to try and resurrect this, this model of myth as analysis. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Are we ready to go to the next chapter? Yeah, I think so. Okay, great. So the next one, defining the literary genre of utopia, some historical semantics, some genealogy, a proposal, and a plea. And I do appreciate that the sections of this are uh, semantics, genealogy, proposal, plea, with maybe like a comment somewhere in there as well. Yeah, yeah. No, he's pretty straightforward about it. Um, so, okay, I do want to say, I am only mildly interested in <laughs> utopia as a genre. Uh, um, in that one way, you're not very Savinian. <laughs> no, not at all. He is very interested in utopia. Yeah. Um, and... I think he makes a good argument for, in his sort of grand historical view of science fiction as this trans-historical constant of human thought, if that is true, 
utopia as a genre is a major way that has been expressed. Yes. That is, yes. I think that's right. And you don't need to think about it that way, to be clear. Yes. Um, so the beginning of this chapter, he goes through a huge number of definitions of utopia. Um, I mean, I don't think he's wrong to. People no. argue about this all the time, even N- now. No, no, it makes perfect sense that he does this. But he basically goes through a, a large number of definitions of utopia and cherry picks out of them the elements that he thinks are worthwhile. Yes. Uh, in, including one very particular element of this. And, and this is a little surprising to me. Mm-hmm. So many of these definitions, and he goes back, like, quite far historically, but yes. he also includes, like, quite recent dictionaries and stuff like that. A huge number of these do not mention any idea of literature or fiction yes. or anything like that. Yeah, I think that's a big part of why he writes out all these definitions, to show that tendency. Yes, and that, like, some of them will say something like depiction, right? And that'll be, like, the closest they get to acknowledging that utopias are things that people made up. Yes, and in fact, that's a big part of his point here, both in the analogy to science fiction, but also in his sort of, his, you know, in order to further talk about his definition of science fiction, he has to define an entire other genre of utopia, and his big drum to beat here, his big, like, point to make is utopia is a literary genre. It's not just, or rather, there's two kinds of utopia. There's the literary genre, and then the other thing that he is willing to say is real and matters is Ernst Bloch's idea of the orientation towards or concept of utopia, which is like the pure universal human desire to better the world and improve things. Like, to move towards a better world is the desire called utopia in Bloch's uh, terminology. And Suvin has an immense respect for this. Like, he, he really says... This is not the thing I'm talking about. It's a thing this literary genre helps communicate. But if you take Bloch seriously, utopia cannot be confined to any field of human endeavor, whether it's politics, uh, you know, sociology, uh, literature, because it's in everything where anything is valuable. And he thinks that's really beautiful. He thinks that's really cool, but it's not helpful for literary analysis, exactly. Right. So what he essentially precipitates out of these other definitions and, like, for his own... What he precipitates out of them and then puts to his own purposes, um, it, he calls it utopia as verbal construction. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is another one of those places where I think it might be worth going through the definition and, like, unpacking yeah. each phrase. Um, are you asking me where that is? A, a little bit, but I can just see it in your uh, version. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, but... I do think that um, something to slightly rotate back to is... Oh, go ahead. When we say verbal construction, he literally very specifically means people talk about utopia like it's a place. It's not a place. It's a description of a place, maybe, but that place doesn't exist. It's a written thing. It's a combination of words that cause you to imagine a place. And this sounds like nitpicking. It's a little bit nitpicking. But it gets to a really important element, which is it's very easy to fall into the idea that utopia really exists out there in some ideal form in, like, you know, in Plato's realm of forms or in the future or somewhere as a physical realized thing, and any attempt to do utopian fiction or utopian writing is fundamentally trying to describe this one thing that exists out there, and either you succeed or you fail. And Suvin wants to go, no, utopia is a genre of literature 
Whether it succeeds or fails on its own merit is a question of that genre's qualities and how it functions. It's not the case that you're just, you know, basically, if I look at your utopia that you've written and say, well, I don't think this is the ideal state, therefore you have failed, I'm not actually engaging with the writing of utopia as a genre, I am expressing my personal moral position on it. Yes. Yeah. And he does also point out that various definitions of utopia have been more or less concerned with the idea of, like, perfectibility of society. Some of them merely mean a place that could not exist. Some of them mean a pla define it as a place that does not exist. And these often play with the inherent pun in the name utopia between uh, e-utopia and just utopia as in place that doesn't exist or good place. Yeah. Um, so, do you mind if I no, go read ahead. the definition? So, uh, utopia is the verbal construction of a particular quasi-human community where sociopolitical institutions, norms, and individual relationships are organized according to a more perfect principle than in the author's community, this construction being based on estrangement arising out of an alternative historical hypothesis. What's amazing is that this this definition is, if anything, more difficult and dense than the science fiction one, despite it not being the purpose of the book. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> so we already kind of went into verbal construction as, yeah, at yeah. length. Quasi-human is kind of charming. It's just because he wants to include things like... Um, the Quinium in Gulliver's Travels. Yeah, or, exactly. Like obnoxious elf horses. Yes. Uh, so yeah, quasi-human as in, I think his defining quality is just that they have to be uh, material beings with like, who are thinking and have morality, basically. Yeah. So like, I think one of the things he's thinking about is if you tell a story about a society of robots where there are no needs because they don't have physical needs and they don't have free will, they just all operate together, that is not actually a utopian story in his perspective because it has not engaged with the idea of arranging a society of things that think at least a little bit like humans and have similar needs. Yes. I think that's a fair gloss on that anyways. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, and then, you know, sociopolitical institutions, norms, and individual relationships. So um, so this is one of the elements. The utopia is really sweeping. Yes. You know, it includes institutions, norms, and individual relationships. Um, or all of the, and all of them are changed by the changes to the given world to make the utopia. Yes, they are all organized according to a more perfect principle. Yes, than in the author's community. Yes, and that part, he, he says at one point about that, about that phrase, the author's community, um, this phrase can be left conveniently plastic. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, the, it's the same principle as in his science fiction definition of the author's empirical reality. Yes, like the thing that's important is if I write a utopia, my utopia is in contrast to, you know, 21st century, like, upper middle class American wife, something yes. like that. Um, like, uh, you you can't talk about utopia in this sort of, like, trans-historical way. Yes, and um, you, you can't uh, detach utopia. Again, you know, this is the thing I was harping on about. You can't detach utopia and say, well, is this the ideal society. If you want to say that uh, Moore's utopia is not a utopia because there's slavery there, 
I certainly don't think we should institute Moore's Utopia as a society, but it's still a utopia as the genre, as the reaction to his society, as satire. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, I should say that that little gesture I just made toward community, um, I do want to make it clear that what I just described is not the only community against which I could write a utopia. Um, it would also be completely possible for me to write a, like, you know, uh, transgender utopia, right? Which would be about a utopia in contrast to the trans community as I experience it. So that author's community is conveniently plastic, not yeah, just yeah. from author to author, but like within whatever it is. Yes, you're... an author is not driven, is not required to do a specific utopia by their position within society. And I think a really interesting thing here is to go back to Joanna Russ, who has a very similar description of utopia when she's discussing some feminist utopias in the essay we read. Yeah, yeah. Where she says that uh, these feminist utopias near merely need to be better on some axes than society in which we currently exist, or in one case is the society isn't better, but it talks about imagining a better society and things like that. So the idea of utopia here is extremely plastic. It just has to be about looking at society and comparing it and uh, to this thing you've constructed. Yes. So that, and then just to sort of finish up the definition, mm -hmm. this construction being based on estrangement, you know, we all know what that means by now. Arising well, out that is part of what we're doing, so let's let's uh, hit on it a little, which is to say, it's not the given world, it's not describing a place, it's not as though you can describe like, well, I'm coming from England, but I'm going to describe American society as utopian. That doesn't work. Yes. Um, arising out of an alternative historical hypothesis. So, there is some element in utopia in which it is like, well, what if the real world were different in this particular way. Yes. Right? Or what if these other conditions or other situations allowed this place to arise? And I think part of the importance there is to compare Utopia to, uh, first of all, the otherworldly paradise, you know, heaven. You, heaven is not a utopia because heaven is outside of history. You don't just, uh, you can't build it in the world. And similarly, the worldly paradise, which is a thing he's really fond of, like he is absolutely in love with this particular historical type of story, which I think we get to in the next section, mm -hmm. um, which is not historically constructed. There's no series of events which lead to the foundation of a worldly paradise or, you know, uh, a material paradise in the world. An example of this is like Avalon or the Isles of the Blessed in Celtic mythology. That simply exists. Yes, there's a better place you can go to in the world where things are more justly organized and there is a quasi-human community that is better in comparison to the author's empirical community. But there's no story of how it came to be. There's no sense of it being able to exist in our history, in our world, either in the past, present, or some alternate pre uh, or future or some alternate present. It simply is. And that's not quite a utopia. Yeah. Oh. So. I don't know how much we need to go into the sections of this that are comments. 
Um, no. Utopia as historical estrangement and Utopia as a more perfect organized community. I think those are kind of, I mean, as we ta- went through the definition, I think yeah, I kind yeah. of I think we crystallized on. those things. Mm, the one about as historical estrangement does actually have the section on the worldly pair, the terrestrial paradise. So could I briefly? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah, just because I think this is really interesting. Um, he, you know, as I talked about this idea of an island of the blessed or a or uh, Avalon, uh, these terrestrial paradises are defined by being imagined as material. And from his perspective, they can't be metaphysical. These are not places the dead go. These are not places where uh, gods are arranging things just so. Rather, these are places that are simply in the world but better. Often, he points out, they imagine the absence of death or aging, they imagine total material abundance, but because they are presented as being within the world, there's some sense of them being possible, being, if not literally possible, then a critique of the the society that we exist within by the fact that somewhere else in the world there is imagined this better thing. And so he sees a utopian strain, the sort of, let's say, proto-utopia of the terrestrial paradise in myth, in historical claims about these places existing. So he says, if not utopia, this is a fraternal genre, an early and primitive branch of science fiction. Or as he always likes to write it, SF. Yeah, you know, one thing is that I think this book is bringing me around to it's fine to just use the abbreviation SF. It's convenient. <laughs> you know, fair enough. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure the book would be like another 20 pages longer if it was always science fiction, not SF. Exactly. <sighs> so then there's some discussion of uh, sort of edges of the definition of utopia, such as... Um, if someone writes a utopia, like, as a blueprint for how it should be, that's not SF, obviously. But if someone wrote it as a story, like, they describe this blueprint, but with someone walking around seeing all of it, the story may be boring, but is that now SF? So there's interesting places where SF and utopia butt up against each other. Or, you know, are the same thing in some cases. (sighs) So, yeah... I think that's defining the genre of utopia for now. Yep. And uh, it's worth mentioning when we do the historical section next month, there's going to be extensive discussion of utopia. Oh, yes. Yes, Um, there is. No. Yeah. So he goes on to at the end of this uh, of this chapter, I think there's a little thing that's very useful, which is um, he goes on to argue uh, finally, it cannot be denied that sociopolitical perfection, though I believe it is historically crucial in our epoch, is logically only a part of bl- only a part of Bloch's spectrum, which extends from alchemy through immortality to omniscience and the supreme good. All cognition be- can become the subject matter of an estranged verbal construction dealing with a particular quasi-human community treated as an alternative history. This cognitive estrangement is the basis of the literary genre of SF. Strictly and precisely speaking, utopia is not a genre, but the socio-political subgenre of science fiction. So he comes at the very end of this chapter to the argument that all of this utopian history, all of these forms of utopia, all of these flavors and elements are all within science fiction because they are cognitively estranged, because that is a core part of their operation, and it is both necessary 
and sufficient. So, you know, after this whole chapter where he's like, well, this is similar to SF, and it's important for discussing the history of SF, he turns around and you at the last second and says, actually, this was SF the whole time! <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's, uh, that's Utopia, for now. All right. Have we had enough Utopia? We could have more Utopia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things could be more perfect around here. Yeah, I can't disagree. Um, Okay. Let's let's go. Uh, the last chapter we're going to talk about today, SF and the Novum. Yes. So here is where we get, uh, I would say, the other part of his major influence on science fiction studies, besides cognitive estrangement, having to engage with that, and also the sort of highly critical, highly analytical way of thinking about science fiction as a genre— We've also got, frankly, just some vocabulary that is used by everyone, that is highly established, and that to some extent encodes his ideas, which is another way in which he has this founder effect. Yes. Uh, do you want to describe what the Novum is? Yeah, so, I mean, this is another place where he just sets out his, uh, you know, premise in the first place and says, okay, I'm going to say that um, my, my premise in this chapter is that SF is distinguished by the narrative dominance or hegemony of a fictional novum, novelty or innovation, validated by cognitive logic. So he's saying, and he'll basically say the exact same thing in the beginning of the next section, yeah. that, um, so the novum is something that is new, novelty or innovation, but that is cognitive, right? So it's not just, like, some shit that's been made up completely, Let's back up a little, because when you say something that is new, that is novel, what uh, what is meant here is something that, by its presence, tells you that this is not the same world you know. Yes. And, like, because, and again, this is him borrowing from Brecht, where the Novum is, or I think it was Brecht, where the Novum is this much wider concept and is, like, this historical break. And as we saw in Chichere Ronai... Oh, I think it's actually Bloch. Oh, is it Bloch? Com yeah, it's yeah. Bloch who comes up with the Novum. I don't Sorry. like that these two have names that begin and end with the same sounds. It makes my life harder, and that's what's important. <laughs> but um, the uh, uh, in Chichere Ronai, he really wanted to uh, focus the Novum on historical novelties in the sense that Bloch was using it, this moment of, the new of newness bursting into history. But as with estrangement and taking it from this particular experience to this very specific formal structure of, okay, we're depicting something unlike our world, Suvin wants to say, instead of the general concept of historical novelty and, like, the event, we're instead going to say the novum is to the reader. It is a formal element of the text, and it's the thing that you look at and say, this world is not like my own. A unicorn is a novum, as is a flying car. And what, uh... That sort of element where Ben is like, uh, this makes you see that the world is different, that is what makes it, to some extent, hegemonic or... Uh, totalizing. Totalizing or narratively dominant. Yes. Um, because once you see it, you know that it's science fiction. Yes, and you know on some level that everything is different. Even yes. if, Even if this is a story where there's just one piece of technology that is different from the real world, just that existing has its own... Huge set of That makes it science fiction. Exactly. And to be clear, there is a case where that wouldn't be a novum in the way that he means it, and that would be if something science fictional appears in the story, 
but doesn't particularly shape or define the story. And that's another element of its, of its hegemon hegemonizing power. If it's important enough to be a true novum within the story, it's going to define the story. I think a good example of this is, you know, I mentioned the idea that you hate James Bond, and part of that is that James Bond often engages with a number of uh, novums. He's, there's often new inventions that are important even to the story of James Bond's adventures, but usually they don't really change the world or shape it, and they really just exist to allow a different action scene. You know, James Bond gets an invisible car, it's there purely for a highway chase scene, and the fact that you have invisible, like, that you can just make things invisible in the James Bond universe is basically irrelevant and never really considered. And so you can have what you might call false novums uh, that fail to hegemonize the narrative, that fail to become a defining thing, and thus fail to achieve escape velocity from the gravity of the given world and create SF rather than uh, pure escapism. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think also it is, like, of some relevance here mm -hmm. that, uh, like, you know, in Bond films, uh, the explanation for all the technology is simply that the British government has it, <laughs> you know? Like, it, 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 it isn't... The question of, like, how would this technology affect the world is very simple. It would affect the world by empowering the British Empire. Yes, James Bond can go do a thing. Although, I will say, there's a funny part here, because often a James Bond story revolves around some kind of novum in terms of what the supervillain has to thread in the world with. But again, the importance of this is purely in setting up the plot, and the actual threat very rarely matters, except, you know, in the movies it looks cool or the, it's conceptually cool. So, James Bond might be slightly science fictional, but Suvin certainly wouldn't think it's actually hitting the right pitch. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, there's also an interesting line here, because, you know, we've talked about the idea that it causes the reader to realize this, but at the same time, that implies that the reader has to be looking at it in a certain way, because if you're, let's say you're a, you know, 13-year-old me or something, you know, a kid, you don't necessarily know what all exists in the world. You don't necessarily know what's a novum when you read it. You can, in fact, miss it. I, I can certainly, I'm sure there's a couple examples of me thinking something was science fictional when it was actually real, or thinking something was totally normal given world stuff, or maybe rare given world stuff, when in fact it was a science fictional invention. And so Suvin says that clearly the Novum is a mediating category whose explicative potency springs from its rare bridging of literary and extra-literary, fictional and empirical, formal and ideological domains, in brief, from its unalienable historicity. Which is to say... It only becomes a novum when you can recognize the difference. Yes. Now, most of the time, this isn't actually going to matter. Like, you see a spaceship, you know it's a novum, right? You see, uh, you know, um, psychic powers, you know they're a novum. You see a dragon, you know it's a novum. If yeah. a fantastical novum, and thus not really... Novum might not be the right term for it. Yeah, but. yeah. But, I yes. I, I, I think... Honestly, I think this is something I want to kind of draw attention to, really, is how easy it is to think of Novum as just meaning, like, anything in the narrative that is not real. Mm -hmm. um, but in fact, yeah, for it to be a true Novum, it does have to be, it does have to be hegemonic, it has to sort of change the world, and it also does have to be... Cognitively valid? Yeah, it has to be, really, in some sense, scientific. Yes. I mean, he literally says, the Novum is... 
validated by the scientific method. That's me very slightly paraphrasing yeah, the sentence, yeah. but um No, it's uh and, it, sorry, go on. And that doesn't mean like therefore science fiction books all have to like cite Footnote, scientific yeah. papers to be accurate. He's not really talking about scientific accuracy. He's talking about, you know, at least his understanding of the scientific method as a worldview. Cognition. Yes. It has to be validated by cognition. And so part of the problem I think for Suvin and that has been created by this is that it's so useful to have a term for the inventions of, let's say, a fantasy novel that once you have Novum in your pocket, you're going to call dragons Novums, even though, again, that's not really what Suvin meant. And to some extent, it makes for a worse analysis when you could just say fantastical elements or... Novelty. Yes, or novelty instead of Novum. But Novum is such a good term for it that I've seen it absorbed into that thing. Frankly, anytime I've used the term Novum in talking about this stuff with, like, you know, buddies online, they'll start using it to just mean the things that are novelties or fantastical or science fictional in a work. And I'm always sort of like, I see what you're doing. It makes sense. You're communicating effectively. And inside, I'm just hopping up and down with, like, frustration at Suvin for not maybe getting a different, uh, having multiple terms for this, one of which is for generally estranging and one of which is for novums. But the thing is, I think he actually quite consistently refers to things that are, you know, not part of the writer's empirical world, but that are not... You know, cognitively validated. Yeah, and not hegemonic. He consistently refers to these things as novelties. Yes, I, I or think sometimes you're right. sometimes innovations. Yes, um, but I think novelty is probably the best word to refer to a dragon. No, I, I think you're basically correct. I do think that there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a funny thing there because a dragon's not a novelty. We all know what a dragon is. We've all run into them in in fantasy enough and in myth that in some sense a dragon is more familiar than most slightly science fictional novums so novelty can feel wrong whereas because novum is its own word it's very easy to slide into this again i'm not defending that i I think that fundamentally it's more useful to have a rigorous term for the novum of science fiction versus the novelties innovations or inventions of fantasy but i can see why people default to novum yeah also i mean there's a there's a complication here of like uh time right like novelty implies newness implies and like obviously in fantasy the things that are not real the things that are let's say estranged um are not necessarily like they don't necessarily you don't necessarily think of those things as new yeah Um, yeah anyways all of this is to say that the term novum is so useful that it's kind of uh broken its banks and is running a bit rampant uh but in Suvin, the Novum has its very particular meaning. Yes. Um, we've already talked at, at some length, I think, about the fact that it has to be hegemonic. Mm-hmm. Um, another part of it is that uh, because of how it deviates from the norm of reality, it has this effect of oscillation between the reality that you know is true, and then the reality that is defined by this novum. Mm -hmm. Um, And that itself is the effect of estrangement, right? The effect of mentally moving back and forth between the world of your experience and this estranged world, and then you sort of come back to the world of your experience having seen it from the other side. Um, That whole movement, okay, the novum is part of how that happens. 
Um, yeah. So he is in this way. He's this is the um, you know re- the structure where he returns to things he's already talked about. He's already talked about cognitive estrangement. Now we can see that the novum is in some sense like the mechanism by which that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the point mass of uh, of estrangement. Mm, yes, that's one way of putting it. I'm not sure that's a great metaphor now that I've said it, but it, it's it's like the the thing that you trip over and you're estranged. Oh, that's even worse. I I don't know what to say, Ben. <laughs> my, my metaphors have just gone completely bad right now. Give me a minute. <laughs> Where next? Um. So he goes on to a few different kind of I think you can call them details about like um things that. Uh, you know, a work of science fiction must do with its novum, or things that he mm-hmm. feels it must do with its novum, like uh, that there there needs to be something to separate the new reality in which this novum is hegemonic from the the empirical given world, mm. um, and uh, that like sort of um, he goes into a lot of detail about time. And mm. works of science fiction being displaced in space or time or both um, from the given world. And uh, he has a lot to say about the relationship of capitalism to time. Yes, um, this we'll actually get some of in the historical section. It's really interesting. I yes, yes. Um, um, but one element of this also is that uh, this uh, this movement out and away uh, often requires, from his perspective, especially in early works, some kind of frame story. Uh, Where science fiction was still getting its feet, it often, in order to make it clear that this is another world, has someone telling you about this other world, this other situation, to introduce the novum and all of its things, and that person often went somewhere else or somewhere else in time in, you know, H.U.L.'s The Time Machine is the classic example, or somewhere else in space, such as uh, Gulliver's Travels, in order to encounter these uh, these novums and is now returning to tell you about them, thus flagging very explicitly, these novums are different. They are creating a different world. It is different from the one you live in. It's somewhere else. And then over time... As people, over time, as people become more used to this concept, now you can just have stories told entirely about or by figures within other worlds, separate from the given world, and that will just be the sort of uh, principle by which you understand them. And I think it's interesting, because I do think this is a question of reading practice as much as it is a question of technique, because... I mean, frankly, people who don't read a lot of fantasy or science fiction can often find it difficult to pick up something that's just set in somewhere totally different from any known historical or, uh, you know, given reality and make sense of it and put it together and immediately know, okay, I need to suspend a lot of my assumptions in certain ways or I need to start interpolating what are what is the reality of this place, of this world. Yeah, yeah. Um... And I think this has something to do, by the way, with the... He, he he goes back in this section to this extrapolation versus analogy thing mm-hmm. that we talked oh, about that before. spiral coming back. Yes, exactly. Um, and I, I think this is another place where he kind of reveals that um, this functions through the novum, um, where it, essentially, like... Uh, let's see. Sorry. Um, just... 
consulting my notes. Um, but, uh, basically this has to do with the way that the Novum, you know, defines, like, an alternative reality. Um, it is, uh, you know, based on that alternatively defined reality that we can see the analogy, which ultimately, you know, he compares extrapolation and analogy, but ultimately extrapolation kind of uh, boils down to the most, like, simplified form of analogy, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, so, that is, um, that's that's that sort of particular element of the chapter. Um, yep, yep. I, I think we're flagging a bit. Yeah, we might be. Do we, let's, okay. No, no. Let's we... finish... We can finish this section. We yeah. can do it. We can do it. <laughs> yes. But um, the things I wanted to touch on briefly in this uh, in this section, I've touched on the sort of frame narrative uh, bit. Um, he does say that any sig- uh, significant uh, SF narrative can be read as analogy, that it's always going to be talking about things that are useful. And I think that's important because... He's really not interested in, you know, if you take these formal uh, devices and just apply them without any interest in talking about the world. To some extent, I think he believes that these formal devices will force you to talk about the world in interesting ways and produce some kind of critique or analysis. But if you manage to avoid all of it, then you've managed to not make SF. You've managed to do the things it does without doing the important things it does. Um... But you ultimately uh, get this return to historicism as well. This idea that the novum as a creative and especially as an aesthetic category is not uh, is is not be fully. Oh, that's a typo in my copy. Anyways, but the new is always a historical category since it's always determined by historical forces, which both bring it about in social practice, including art, and make for new semantic meanings that crystallize the novum in human consciousness. So he is going back to Bloch eventually in saying that the novum, the good novum in science fiction, is necessarily historical and necessarily brings about some degree of novelty, and that's part of where science fiction gets its power as well. So again, there's this spiraling going on, where he returns to these ideas and uh, sort of emphasizes them. Yes. Um, there's a there's a little chunk I would like to read, which is from like almost the very end of the chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, where he says, all the epistemological, ideological, and narrative implications and correlatives of the novum, so everything that this chapter was about, lead to the conclusion that significant SF is, in fact, a specifically roundabout way of commenting on the author's collective context. So basically, any work of science fiction is about the time and place and world in which it is written. Which I think is kind of a truism nowadays. Like, this is, this is, and I don't mean that in a negative sense. Like, it's to the point that there was, I ran into a collection of comics that were, I think, edited by Cory Doctorow in, like, 2011 or something called Amazing Tales of the Here and Now. And they're all science fiction, but they're very explicitly organized by Doctorow being like, you know... Really good science fiction is always talking about the present, even if it uses the future for it. And in a certain sense, it's like, yeah, we were, we were talking about that in the 70s. But also, I think this also speaks to the penetration of the Suvinian idea of science fiction as critical. A lot of the pre-Suvin concepts of science fiction, I think examples of this are Damon Knight's Sense of Wonder or... Um, 
uh, various ideas about, you know, again, this sort of myth element of science fiction, or simply the idea that science fiction is, as Gernsback would have it, a way of popularizing science and a way of sort of presenting narratives that are structured by science, which is this very important force. The Suvinian analysis is present in anything that's like, well, science fiction is commenting on the real world, is about the here and now as much as it can be about anything, and is fundamentally part of a critical analysis that, that science fiction is a critique, effectively, that estrangement and cognition are ways of thinking about the world we live in. And I think that's a very powerful idea, and I think it's a real reason why he's had such uh, penetration and such lasting power, even as, for example, his deep antipathy to fantasy has turned off a lot of critics who want to use him and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I think there's, like, something really powerful about this this point that he makes um, about science fiction as commenting on its its context and about, as, as he's constantly emphasizing, science fiction as historically situated, because ultimately what that tells us is that science fiction can be useful. Like, science fiction can say something to us that is, like, meaningful. New information, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that that is something that Suvin really believes in despite it all. Like, every time he shits on space opera, <laughs> that is something that is holding the world back from the potential of, like, critical analysis of where we currently are so that we can be somewhere better. Yes. You know? The, um, the fundamental thing he sees in science fiction is, in his opinion, like we said, it's liberatory. It is part of this sort of grand effort. And I think in one of the prefaces for one of the editions, he basically says, yeah, I mean, if I didn't think science, people have said I'm too harsh on science fiction, that I actually don't like it. If I didn't think science fiction had this incredible potential, I wouldn't write this at all. I would just ignore it. Yes. And I think ultimately that, I think I said on a previous episode that I get a little frustrated with the, I guess what I see as a current academic trend to always be valorizing things and never be mm. denigrating them. Um, oh, I have thoughts. Sorry, go on. <laughs> well, and I mean, I think that this book is a really good example of how those things are the same because, like, he is here to celebrate science fiction. He is here to describe, in a way that is, like, really specific and cogent, what there is to celebrate in science fiction. And that ultimately means that you have to critique the things that fall short of that, right? Um, and even though I wouldn't necessarily say that everything he points to and says this is not critical, this is not historical, this is... Bad. You know, yeah, bad. Um, there are things that he points at and I would say, actually, this is extremely critical. Like, um, he, I believe, really specifically calls out science fantasy um, as something that can't be critical at all. And I, you know, strongly disagree. Yeah, <laughs> but I... I, I that's a chapter of my dissertation. Please continue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, um, but like, fundamentally, yeah, I do believe that science fiction that has nothing to say about the real world is not valuable very... literature. Yeah, no, it's... <sighs> the thing that I think Suvin, you know, and I've, I've said this again and again, but I do think it's worth keeping in mind... Suvin really does help create science fiction studies because he puts forward this ethos of 
thinking about science fiction critically in this really rigorous and dedicated way for hundreds of pages in this book. And he also, you know, like you said, he really cares about science fiction and about building things up, even if to do so, he has to be as harsh as possible, as critical as possible to draw out what is really of great potential. I think that one of the reasons why modern academics are very concerned with, like, positivity about the works they work with is in part because of the, not the death of the canon, but the weakening of the canon. Mm -hmm. It means that you kind of have to defend why someone should read the book you're talking about as part of your project. Why is it worth reading this when there's so many other books out there and we're trying not to have just a canon that you're required to read? Or, even worse, or, you know, even more difficult, the difficulty, you're trying to argue people should read something that isn't part of the canon at all and doesn't have that kind of institutional force making them read it, you're really going to have a hard time going, well, this kind of half succeeds at this really interesting thing, so you should read it anyways, but keep these things in mind. It's much easier to write, this has great liberatory power and potential, it's really doing great things, even if there are some minor problems. <laughs> so yes. there's reasons why that kind of approach has, has succeeded. Of course, yeah. But it also means that Suvin, who is just trying to burn science fiction into the canon by main force, just present, this is why not only is science fiction already part of the canon via this long history, but also it does something nothing else in the canon can do. You need to read it. It is important with just absolute unflinching dedication to his principle makes for a very powerful uh, piece. And there's this line at the beginning of uh, 3.4 in SF and the Novum, which is the beginning of the last section of the poetic section of the book. It reads, Since freedom is the possibility of something new and truly different coming about, the possibility of making it different, the distinction between a true and fake novum is, interestingly enough, not only a key to aesthetic quality in SF, but also to its ethico-political liberating qualities. As always in art, ethical pathos and effect, or communal, political relevance, are the obverse of aesthetic consistency. They fuse in the realization that finally, the only consistent novelty is one that constitutes an open-ended system which possesses its novum continually both in itself and before itself, as befits the unfinished state of the world, nowhere determined by any transcendental supraworldly formula. And that's a lot of words, and a lot of it's quoting Bloch, but it's fundamentally saying that what makes SF great and what makes the Novum meaningful and fundamentally the things he has framed as formal and structural qualities are also ethical qualities. A Novum is good because it can do good in some way. And I think that's a, I mean, it's a strident and it's a powerful image of the value of science fiction. Yeah, I really couldn't say it better than that. <laughs> um... <laughs> Uh, and it also goes on to some truly wonderful uh, sentences that includes frames like, uh, uh, We and our ideolo ideologies are not the end product history has been laboring for from the time of the first saber-toothed tigers in Mesopotamian city-states. And just a bunch of stuff that's very soothing to write. Yes. Like, oh. <sighs> but, yeah, no, I think there's a lot of very intensive and strongly held opinions that become the bedrock for him having such a devoted formal criticism of what science fiction is 
and presenting the idea that science fiction can be a useful way of thinking about things. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, sort of a last note I want to make is that I had a chance to, because I had to describe my dissertation to a family friend, I had a lovely conversation with him, and I described what cognitive estrangement was, because it's an important term in this stuff, and he was like, wow, that's really interesting, because it makes me think of science fiction as a way to think about things, not just as, like, books that I've enjoyed, but as an actual, like, approach to the world. And I found that, first of all, I found it really moving that someone listened to me enough to actually feel that way, because, like, you know, that's really nice. But also, yeah. I was really moved, because it's like, yeah, the, the Suvinian Project, even if you're not going to be really mad at fantasy, or really, like, dedicated to a very specific interpretation of Marxism, the Suvinian Project really has that appeal of wanting to see science fiction as more than escapism, as having this real critical meaning. <sighs> All right, I'm ready to let them go if you are. <laughs> yeah, no, we're uh Oh, that that was my last burst. Uh like the like the false novum, I've burst like a firecracker. What where's that block quotation? Anyways. <laughs> All right, stay cognitively estranged everybody. Okay, that can't be our that can't be our sign out. <laughs>